As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. And I'm both sad and excited to say we've reached the end of this season, or nearly the end. There will be one more episode next week to tie up a few loose ends, but today's episode will bring us full circle. This season, we've been taking a journey through one branch of my own family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. If you've just discovered the podcast and haven't listened to the earlier episodes in this season, I highly suggest you go back and listen to them first, as each episode in this season builds on the one before it. We've been on quite the tour of religious beliefs and connection, or rather disconnection from the land, over the past 2,000 years, and how it all led up to my Swedish ancestors leaving their homeland on a Mormon immigration ship to the United States. This is a bit of a surprise ending. At least, it wasn't the one I had expected or planned. Because something quite unusual unfolded over the past month. I met my past self, the one that lived a life in the Mormon church. And I didn't just meet him in a journey. I got to know him in a way that I never expected. Or wanted to, if I'm being honest. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, let me just say that If this season is inspiring you to go deeper on your own journey with your ancestors and the spirits of the land, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other Earth Tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. Now, in order to reach the end of this journey, we have to go back to where we started with my grandma Marilyn. She's the one who was excommunicated from the Mormon Church, if you remember. In the last five years or so before she passed away, I had coffee with her every Monday morning. Her health was not good and she didn't get up and around much. So on my way to work on Mondays, I would swing by Starbucks for a drink for each of us and then stop at her house and in the last two years, the nursing home so that we could drink our coffees and chat. On one of these visits, we were talking about genealogy. I can't remember what prompted the conversation or who exactly we were talking about, but she got a little bit agitated about the discussion. She said something like, I don't know why everyone is so concerned about all the men in the family and why the women are always ignored. The women are the ones who are always there doing the work, taking care of the children, making sure the next generation grows up. 
nobody cares about them. This comment seemed a bit odd to me. We weren't even talking about anyone in particular, and I hadn't mentioned anything about the men in the family. But I knew that her father had disappeared when she was young, leaving her mother to care for four small children during the Great Depression, so her perspective also made sense. Why do the men get all the attention when, in many families, it's the women holding it all together? Gender roles in the Mormon church that she grew up with were very defined, and little has changed in the religion between the 1930s and today. The Mormon belief is it's not just our body that holds a gender, but our spirit as well, as assigned by God. And as such, it's important to honor the roles assigned to that gender. Men hold leadership roles and women hold support roles. In fact, when a woman in the church began a campaign to allow the ordination of female clergy in 2014, the church excommunicated her. So yeah, they're pretty serious about this. And it connects to a dream I had with my grandmother last summer. In the dream, she had passed away, but came to tell me that there was a house that needed to be cleansed. I prepared to go to this house to do the necessary energy work, but was told that I needed to bring two boys from the family along to help me. I was confused, as this was something I could certainly do by myself, but was told that only boys or men were allowed to do it. So I went and found the boys, they were maybe 12 and 14 years old, and took them along to the house. This was a house I had never seen before. And when we went inside, there was my grandma sitting in a wheelchair, looking like she did shortly before she passed away. I couldn't understand how she was still alive when I knew for sure she had already passed, but I was just so happy to see her. I went and sat on her lap and hugged her while the boys went to do the energy work. She told me that the house was dangerous and that I shouldn't stay. Let the boys do the work, she told me. So I left her and the house and then woke up from the dream. It took me a bit to process what had happened. And in all honesty, I'm not even sure I've interpreted it correctly. But I do think this was probably a house from her childhood. And there was a piece of her soul that was still stuck there even after her death. So it felt like a soul retrieval she was asking for help with. And this leads me to an unusual experience I had with my own past life over the past month. And perhaps the entire purpose of this season of the podcast. Because if you remember back in episode 72, I had a past life reading with psychic Carrie Koss. The first thing she shared about my past life in the Mormon church was that I was a man, but that I didn't conform to the strict gender expectations by the church. So in case you were wondering, it looks like God does not in fact assign gender roles before we incarnate since here I am in this lifetime as a woman. But hey, I guess the fact that I reincarnated at all turns the church's teachings on its head, so I'm not all that surprised. Anyhow, she gave me a few details about my life in that lifetime, and also mentioned that I wasn't in just any Mormon family, I was in my own family, making me my own ancestor. And if you think about all time happening at the same time, it just means that a piece of my soul is there in Pioneer, Utah, at the same time it is here in 2023, Montana. Our souls are so large and vast that we can be incarnated in many times and places simultaneously. And I believe we send little notes and messages and energy back and forth between ourselves. 
he learned something in that lifetime, and it kind of vibrates over to me here to integrate, and vice versa. So anyway, even though Carrie had told me a handful of details about myself in that time, I truly didn't have the desire to go looking for exactly which person she was talking about. I didn't think it was important to know, and I wasn't sure I could figure it out anyway. It kind of felt like a wild goose chase with no real purpose. So anyhow, that reading with Carrie was back in August or September, and all of a sudden in December, while I was working on an episode, I heard a message clearly in my head that said, you're the one in the photo. What? What photo? What is this about? I asked back to the voice in my head. And I was shown an image in my third eye of the photo that I used for the trailer episode for this season. In that photo was a man, a woman, and a boy, about 12 years old. The man and woman are my great-great-great-grandparents, Thomas and Martha Williams, who joined the church and immigrated to Utah from England, and their son, Joseph, one of their 11 children. I was right in the middle of working on another episode, so I kind of blew the message off. I mean, that would be kind of convenient, right? That out of the small handful of photos I have from that side of the family, the one I have has a picture of me from that life. Seems too easy. So the next day, I'm back on my computer, still working away on that episode, when I hear the voice again. You're the one in the photo. Don't you remember that Carrie said you were wearing overalls? You're wearing overalls in the photo. And I laugh and say, sure, like every frontier farm boy at that time wore. That's not exactly a unique detail. And so I let it go again. I'm sure I make it sound like I hop down every rabbit hole and try to make every connection possible. So this sounds a bit nuts that I keep ignoring this message. But honestly, I wasn't sure I wanted to know this much detail about my other life. So On the third day in a row, it happens again. This time it says, we told Carrie to mention overalls so that you could make the connection. Why would she mention something that would otherwise be that obvious? We wanted you to see the picture and put it together. He had a sister that moved to California, remember? And finally, I decided to listen. So I stopped what I was doing, pulled the family temple records back up, and decided to see if I could confirm the message that I was getting. Thomas and Martha had three boys, Charles, who died when he was about 10 months old, Thomas, who never married, and Joseph, the one in the photo. Joseph Daniel Williams was born December 29, 1884, in Harrisville, Utah, which is just outside of Ogden. His next youngest sister, Martha Elizabeth, married Niels Nephi Levine, the oldest son of Nils and Maria, the Swedish immigrants we've been following in this story. And Martha and Niels were the ones who lost their farm in Idaho and moved to California in the 1920s. Holy crap, the boy in the overalls in the photo had a sister who moved to California, my great-great-grandmother. I stopped and took a really deep breath. Was this him? I mean, was this me, Joseph Daniel Williams? I flipped over to Martha and Niels's temple records. Carrie had said that the sister wasn't all that connected to the church either, so maybe I would find something there to confirm that. And I found that while they baptized all nine of their children, which was probably par for the course in early 1900s America, regardless of your religion, 
only three of the kids went on to be married and endowed in the church. So it does seem like maybe they weren't as devout as their parents were. So then I went to Ancestry.com and I typed in Joseph's vital stats. And while I waited for the search results, I said in my head, if this is really him and there is something I need to know here, I want you to make it super clear. So as I scrolled down the list of documents, the death certificate caught my eye and I clicked to view it. The first thing that catches my attention is the date the certificate was completed right at the top of the page. It was on November 27th, my wedding anniversary. I mean, certainly a coincidence, but not exactly a slam dunk. So I scrolled down to the cause of death, pulmonary infarction. I don't know what that means, so I Google it. It's a lung blockage. The certificate also notes that he's had pulmonary fibrosis for many years that was a contributing cause, and one other contributing cause is noted, a fracture in his left leg that happened three months prior. Now that's kind of weird, first, that a leg fracture would contribute to a lung condition, but also, let's not ignore the fact that I've been dealing with and working on healing this mystery pain on my left leg back, hip area for over 20 years. Okay, still not a definite confirmation. I flipped through a few more documents, his World War II draft card when he was 56 years old, his marriage certificate, a photo of his headstone, which had a large rose etched at the top, and his obituary, which was on the front page of the Magna Utah paper. It said that everybody knew him as Dan and that he was a heating plant operator for the copper plant a prominent member of the LDS Church, and a longtime leader of the Boy Scouts. It noted his quiet and genial nature, and the fact that he'd just returned from the hospital stay for a broken hip. So all interesting and potentially correct based on Carrie's reading, but nothing I could be absolutely certain about, pretty much as I figured. But then I remembered, the Mormons have their own ancestry website, where they're encouraged to share photos, documents, and stories about their family members. Kind of an online scrapbook. I'd been on the site a handful of times looking up other family members. That's where I'd first found that photo. But details had been sparse for the people I'd looked up. A bit more than Ancestry, but not much. But now that I was down this path, I figured I should check it out to see if there was anything on Dan. So... Over to familysearch.org, I went and typed in Joseph, or rather Dan's, name, birth date, and location. And as the results came back, my jaw dropped. 36 memories were logged for Joseph Daniel Williams. Photos, stories, documents, a literal treasure trove of details about his life. There was even an audio recording done by one of his granddaughters explaining that his lung condition was from his years of work at the copper mill. As I looked through the memories, I noticed a photo of a sugar bowl and creamer that he and his wife received as a wedding gift. It was decorated with painted roses. His granddaughter, Jane, had written a multi-page document with her memories. She said he was a farmer at heart and also always had a garden in the backyard. He farmed in the mornings and worked the afternoon shift at the mill. He belonged to the local garden club and also grew roses. There's the roses yet again. And she remembers him cutting rose bouquets for her when she visited. He raised rabbits and was a scoutmaster for many years. 
She also mentioned that at a church meeting, he raised his hand once to oppose a vote for someone as the elder quorum secretary. She said she had never seen anyone do that before, and that her grandfather specifically always followed the rules, so she was very surprised that he would do that. His vote got him an invite to speak with the stake president and explain himself. Apparently, the person they were voting for on this role was away fighting the war, and Dan thought he couldn't handle the duties of the position. And so the stake president nominated somebody else. Kind of funny to think about this being a core memory of her grandfather so many years later. That although there were votes taken in the church, it was expected that you vote the way you were told to, and the way everyone else was voting. Simply raising your hand to oppose a vote resulted in a talking to. She also mentioned his very beautiful penmanship and his affinity for crafts like knife making and leather crafts, and that in the months after he broke his hip, before he passed away, he cut fabric and braided rugs for each of his daughters. As I continued clicking through the photos, he's often pictured in denim overalls. And there's a mention of him always drinking his beverages from a cup and saucer. So I guess that struck at least one of his grandkids as unusual. And at this point, I was starting to rack up a number of similarities. I mean, of course, the affinity for plants and gardening. And the rabbits. I actually raised rabbits for quite a few years as a kid myself. I had so many at one point that my dad built me a separate barn for them as a Christmas present one year just to get them out of the sheep barn. And strangely enough, I was a Boy Scout too. Seriously. When I was in high school, I got a job one summer working at a Boy Scout camp. However, in order to work there, you had to actually be a Boy Scout. So I joined for the summer. Had the uniform and everything. Pretty funny, right? And then there's the rose references. So much of the grid work I have done has had some kind of a rose connection. And I've always connected it to the term rose lines. I shared more about that in episode 20, Rose Lines, Secret Maps, and the Knights Templar in North America. But now I'm starting to think it was also a code for Dan's involvement. That when I'm doing this work, I'm connecting with that part of my soul who made a vow to come back and do just this. Because it feels a bit unusual that a man who lived according to the gender norms of the LDS church would have had such a connection and affinity to roses that it was inscribed on his headstone. I mean, yes, Mormons in general have a love for roses because of the Bible quote about making the desert bloom like a rose. But I've been to quite a few Mormon cemeteries, and I can't recall any headstone that specifically had a rose etched on it. So perhaps this is a frequency that echoes through my soul lineage back through many lifetimes. Maybe that's why the Rose of Venus story wanted to be highlighted back in episode 76. The symbol of the perfection of the universe. The marriage of the masculine and feminine to create life and beauty. And speaking of marriage, I was curious what I could find out about his relationship with his wife, Althea. When I went to her page on Family Search, it was just as detailed as Dan's, with dozens of photos and stories about her life. There's even a typed autobiography she wrote about her life starting in 1942 that she added on to for the next 20 years. She was born in 1889 and was a very sickly child, but her parents were very devout Mormons. They would fast for days at a time and have the church elders visit twice a day. 
As her sickness progressed, her family at some point believed her to be dead, and her mother and other church sisters washed her and laid her out, and her mother asked one of the elders to administer and pray over her. There was some discussion about whether it was any use to do so for a dead child, but they finally decided to do it to make her mother happy, and as they prayed, Althea began to move, and they realized she was still alive. She slowly recovered and said that her uncle always said that she had visited the other side, but was too young to remember any stories to tell of it. All through her childhood, she had one malady or another, but always her family would pray for her and she would recover. There even had one dream in particular that led her to a particular church member in another ward. He poured consecrated olive oil on her wounds and prayed over her, and she began to heal. She missed multiple years of school growing up, one for the skin condition, another for a heart condition, and more due to an adverse reaction to a new vaccine. But after telling all of these stories about her childhood, she then just says, in the spring of 1909, I married Joseph Daniel Williams. That's it. No mention of how they met or their courtship. So perhaps the union of this sickly girl and unusual boy was arranged by their families. She was 20 and he was 25. They initially moved to Colton, Idaho, where his family farmed, but the following year, Althea's father got sick and died, and they went back to Utah so Dan could run the farm for his mother-in-law. In fact, they lived in West Jordan, Utah, just south of Salt Lake City. My husband's family lives in South Jordan, only about four miles away. Every time we visit Salt Lake, this is where we stay, so I'm quite familiar with this spot. The farmland has all become subdivisions, but it does explain my affinity for the view of the mountains from there. During World War I, the mill he was working at closed down, and they went back to Idaho to farm some sagebrush ground. She mentions multiple illnesses, including a burst appendix for Dan that landed him in the hospital for nine weeks, followed by typhoid a couple years later, and then they all got the flu presumably the remnants of the Spanish flu, in early 1920, which she says she still didn't understand how they all pulled out of that. She notes the birth and baptism dates of each of her children, including a son, who died the day after his blessing. Eventually, they sold their stock and left Idaho to go back to Magna, Utah, another small town just west of Salt Lake City, in February 1926. I wonder if this is the same time that Dan's sister and her family left for California, as the timing is similar. Perhaps they were all farming together when the bottom fell out of the market and they lost their farm. His sister's family went to California as itinerant farmers, and he went back to the mill he'd worked at before the war. After a few more dates and details about their children, Althea says that her husband suffered for years with the dust. That's the lung condition and finally retired from the mill in 1951. On August 11th, 1953, he fell in his bedroom while getting dressed and broke his hip. His left hip. That's the one that's given me so many pains in my adult life. He was rushed to the hospital and laid for nine weeks with an 18-pound weight on his leg. A week after removing the weight, they sent him home where he laid for four more weeks, suffering in pain before passing away on November 16th, 1953. I mean, I feel like at this point, I can't really argue with that little voice in my head that said, you're the boy in the photo. I actually can't believe there was this much information available to find online. And I guess we can thank the Mormon church for that. 
they encourage the women to be the record keepers of their families and to keep journals. Althea certainly had a deep reverence for her faith and even said in her autobiography, how wonderful the power of the priesthood when explaining how her arm was healed with the consecrated oil and prayers. If he had any doubts about the religion, Dan certainly kept up a good show for his wife and family. And so I closed my computer and walked away from all the photos and stories thinking that would be the end of it. Now I knew. I knew more about that life than I probably needed to know. Saw photos of myself staring back at me, and it was really weird. But as it turned out, that was just the beginning of my connection with Dan. Over the next few days, it was like we had somehow merged into each other's lives. I kept getting flashes of what the inside of his house looked like. It was like I was sitting in the chair in his living room watching his life play out. And I could feel him looking through me at my life, like my eyes had been replaced by his eyes. And I didn't really like it. I kept feeling like I needed to tune in, make sure he was crossed over, and that he hadn't become an attachment spirit. But I literally didn't have the energy. Each day, my energy was feeling more and more drained, which also classic attachment spirit symptom. But I just didn't have the energy to deal with it. Till I finally crashed on the couch on Christmas afternoon, completely depleted, trying to close my eyes for half an hour between one function and another, unsure of how I was going to drag myself through the rest of the day. My hip had also suddenly started hurting again, and I'd been limping around all day. So with all the energy I could muster, I strengthened my energy field and I said, dude, you cannot be here. Not like this. You have got to go. At which point I did feel the energy shift a bit. And I suddenly remembered the postscript typed at the end of Althea's autobiography by her granddaughter after her death. It said, Grandma lived in her little home in Magna for 11 years as a widow. The early part of December 1964, she suffered a stroke and died on Christmas morning, three weeks later, never regaining consciousness. When Grandpa was alive, he always made a big thing of Christmas, and it was a favorite occasion for all his family. After his death, it was one of the hardest times of the year for Grandma. Shortly before her death, she told me she didn't think she could face another Christmas without Grandpa. And as her strong faith had carried her through on many occasions, once again, her prayers were answered, and she was able to be with her beloved husband on Christmas. So this was a very important day for them both. No wonder I was feeling his energy so strongly that week, but especially on Christmas Day. The following day, my energy started coming back, and as the days passed that week, I figured he was gone. But a week or so later, I had two strange dreams on back-to-back -back nights. In the first one, I was in a big, beautiful church. Filling the pews on the right side of the church were all of the people who were preparing to take communion. And then on the left side of the church, each pew had one person in it. So from the back of the church, it looked like a single file line of people. And everyone on that side, which included me, were refusing to take communion. But that was it. I woke up from the dream and there was no other context. The next night, I had a dream that I was outside at the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City in the middle of a large group of people who were protesting the church. There was shouting and people holding signs and everyone was rushing up the steps to storm the building. And the entire protest was led by the news anchor, Charlie Rose. 
huh? <laughs> I was so confused when I woke up. I couldn't even remember who Charlie Rose was, so I googled him, thinking maybe he was a Mormon. Nope, not a Mormon. But he was fired from his very high-profile position at CBS News after multiple allegations of sexual misconduct. I was a bit puzzled about what he was doing in my dream and what the Mormon connection was, but realized he was only there to make the connection with the name Rose. It was a code for Dan. He still had a bone to pick with the church. I'm just going to guess about sexual abuse and misconduct and was letting me know he was still protesting, refusing to take the sacrament, storming the doors of the temple. So he might have stepped back a bit out of my energy field, but he definitely wasn't gone. One more dream a few nights later where I was doing some <clears throat> inappropriate man-like things, and I knew I had to deal with it. Dan wasn't just a random earthbound spirit. He was me, or at least an aspect of me. We'd apparently made an agreement, and he wasn't going to let me off the hook now. So I made myself a hot saltwater bath got in, closed my eyes, and called in my ancient ancestors and asked them to tell me more about Dan. I could see him there, pacing around outside my energy field, pretty fired up, so now I knew he needed to cross over. I was a little confused since this is an aspect of my own soul and asked my other ancestors to help me understand. Was this actually a soul retrieval for me, or was this more about him transitioning? I wasn't totally sure. But they told me that he needed to cross over first, and then we needed to let that energy settle for a bit before doing anything else. I had a short conversation with him where I explained that he could never accomplish what he's trying to accomplish while he's on this side, that he could do much better work once he transitions to the other side. Since I've already learned my lesson with the Mormon spirits, I called on Jesus to open the portal for him to cross over. But he kind of rolled his eyes at Jesus and said, that guy isn't even real. The church just made him up. And I was like, okay, well, in that case, I guess you don't have to believe in him. Just go through the portal and be reunited with your family. And he kind of begrudgingly left. I wasn't really sure what to think about the whole situation. My ancient ancestors said that his energy was particularly difficult for me to find or notice in my energy field because, well, he is me. Or at least a very similar aspect to me, which makes sense. But that was pretty much the end of that. No more weird Mormon dreams for the past week or so. But when I sat down to write this episode, I kept getting the sense that I needed to check back in and see if there was more information about this whole journey that I've been on the past three years, but especially over the past year. I think Dan is still resting and reviewing his life and healing because he didn't come to speak with me when I tuned in. It was my ancient ancestors who again stepped forward. They said it would be a while before he's officially on the team to work with us. But they did share a bit more insight about what we've agreed to work on in our lifetimes. Because it's not just Dan and I doing this work. There's many more bits and pieces of our combined souls scattered across time and space doing similar work in other timelines. Specifically, Finding the places within organized religion that are so dark and restricted that the light can't get in. They showed me an image of the three monkeys with their eyes, ears, and mouths covered. As in, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. They said, that's the problem. 
that within many religious organizations, people aren't able to see, hear, or speak about what's right in front of them. In many cases, they don't even know it's there. They're saying and doing what the church tells them to do and not thinking for themselves, unknowingly handing their lives over to the evil itself. And look, I don't even like using that word, evil. I know there's a lot of people doing very good work under the auspices of religion around the world. But the message here is to use your discernment and not take things at face value. Let's your good intentions be used for bad without your knowledge. What's interesting is that I decided to look up where these sayings with the three monkeys came from and discovered there's a piece missing from the original saying. It dates back to at least the 2nd or 4th century BC, and the full saying is, look not at what is contrary to propriety. Listen not to what is contrary to propriety. Speak not what is contrary to propriety. Make no movement which is contrary to propriety. The suggestion is that the fourth missing monkey should be covering its genitals to signify that we should do no evil with our bodies. Or rather, do not look, listen, speak, or do anything immoral. Because propriety is more about morality than evilness. And it does seem like a simple formula for living a good life. But my ancient ancestors said that Dan, as a male member of the LDS church, was on the inside. He was privy to a lot of discussions about people's secrets. And I've spoken to enough former church members to know that people really do confess many of their deepest, darkest secrets to the elders in order to seek guidance. The men who are leaders in the church have heard many, many stories of abuse. And often the counsel that's given allows the abuse to continue or blames the victim for the abuse, which is what caused Dan so much agony. He saw the women in his family be dazzled by what he considered to be the dark magic of the church and then be abused by it. He loved them and he did his best to protect them and keep them safe, but also knew that there were predators hiding in plain sight. No wonder why he didn't believe in Jesus. Jesus was like a lure the church used to reel people in. But once they were in, it wasn't unconditional love or everlasting life that they found. It was control and restriction and abuse of their minds, their bodies, and their souls. Quite the heavy burden to carry your entire life. My ancestors explained that most of these dreams I've had over the past year were really glimpses into Dan's life and memories. Which makes sense. So many of the dreams I had about church rituals that I didn't even understand. I had to ask people to tell me what I was seeing. And so I asked if this part of our story was coming to a conclusion. I feel ready to set it down and stop carrying it myself. But they tell me this is one piece of my life's work. I suppose I could ask to change the contract, but it's a contract I made for myself. So I think for now, I'm just going to let it be and see what happens next. The ancestors explained that Dan and I are working from opposite sides. He's on the inside, but has to work quietly. I'm an outsider, but can share these stories publicly, which is what I saw in those two dreams. One was a protest happening quietly inside of a church, and one was a loud protest on the outside. Different methods with the same purpose. And so, I hope that you've gotten something out of this season. 
that it's giving you some perspective or insight about the journey of your own ancestors or your own soul. As I've been winding my way towards the end of this season, I've been asking myself, but what did the mushrooms have to do with anything? Why was there this thread of entheogenic plant medicine that kind of popped in and out? I mean, part of it's quite obvious. Human beings have always sought healing with nature, where we find that we always have everything we need. Religion tried to replace that. It stepped into the middle of a perfectly functioning ecosystem that we were an integral part in and pulled us away from the mountains and the trees and the healing springs and told us that communing with those energies was an evil act, that our salvation was to be found in a building and that we had to give our time and money to this institution in order to get to heaven. But entheogenic plants and fungi can help us to see our place in the world to see the world as it actually is, rather than what we've been told it is. We find immortality not in some heavenly city where the streets are paved with gold, but in living in harmony with the Earth's seasonal cycles. When we move and flow with the cycles of birth, death, and rebirth that are on display all around us year after year, we understand that our lives are the same, that we live and we die, and then we are reborn again. Our bodies come from the earth and return to the earth. By the time Nils and Maria set foot on that boat in Sweden to sail for America, those ancestral memories were already lost to them. They didn't remember the seasonal celebrations of the generations that had come before them. The rejoicing with the goddess Mother Earth when the sun returned on the winter solstice. The excitement for the first green sprouts poking through the frozen soil on the spring equinox the feeling of the heat of the sun on their skin at summer solstice, and the abundance of the fall harvest and releasing of that which must die at the autumn equinox. These celebrations were sacred times to be together with each other and in communion with the sacred plants they knew would provide guidance and insight for the coming season. And that when it was their time to return to the earth, that their family members and descendants would see them again during these important quarterly rituals. The plants would be their medium. And ultimately, that's what my ancestors said made my journey possible. The mushroom was the medium. And so I looked back on my own calendar and realized that the Amanita muscaria mushrooms arrived to me on January 16th of 2022, almost exactly a year ago. I let them sit on my nightstand for a week or so before making tea with them for the first time, so I'm not sure now the exact date I first ingested them, but it's awfully close to the date this episode is airing. And so we've completed the cycle, or a cycle anyway. I can see it now in retrospect, but I'm reminded of a message the mushrooms gave me last summer when I was asking them about how the ancestors worked with this medicine. And they showed me that To our ancestors on the other side, there are many closed doors and only so many ways for them to reach us. Because they're so familiar with the frequency of Amanita muscaria, when we connect with that frequency, a door between us opens, and they can reconnect with us more easily. So whether I knew it or not, I opened the door for Dan and I to connect in this way when I took that first sip of tea. I'm sure we'd already made that agreement in some place in time. It was all part of our plan from a soul level. And while I've had quite the year getting a full education about his life and religion, 
I wonder if he had a year in his life where he was repeatedly dreaming of being a woman living in the mountains of Montana. Maybe I've influenced his life as much as he's influenced mine. And so the mushroom is the medium. At first, I thought the ancestors meant medium, as in the substance that made it possible. And I mean, I guess that's true. But after giving it some thought, I realized that it's also acting as an alternate definition of the word, that of a spiritual medium, a being standing in the gap between the living and the dead, or perhaps more accurately, between one timeline and another, a medium communicating messages across the veil. And that's certainly what Amanita Muscaria has been for me. An otherworldly channel connecting place and time, heaven and earth, the living and the dead, to bring healing not just to me, but to all of you who have received even a piece of their wisdom through these episodes. No matter where in the world your ancestors originated, they would have had sacred rituals that coincided with the cycles of the year and been aided by an entheogenic substance that acted as their medium. Much of that is lost to us today, but we can begin to reclaim what we need to live healthy, happy, and fulfilled lives in these modern times by reconnecting with the cycles and seasons of the earth. And for those of us who feel called, we can work with the mushroom as our medium. I want to share my deepest gratitude to you for joining me on this most unusual journey here in season three of the podcast. I have no doubt the story will continue to unfold in my own life, but I feel like we've reached some kind of conclusion here. I'll be back next week with one more bonus episode to tie up a few loose ends with some additional interviews and conversations. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. I'll see you back here next week. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.